Business in the Okanagan Matters. This is Law Talk with lawyers Clay Williams and Tanvir Gill from FH&P Lawyers, LLP. They talk business and take your questions at podcast at fhplawyers.com. Now, here's Clay Williams. Welcome to another edition of FH&P Lawyers. Law Talk. You probably Law don't talk. remember because you, you continuously oh. did not come for the podcast recording. So I'm going to take over here. <laughs> when Clay was away for a couple of episodes, he was actually away at a trial in Kamloops. Is that where you were? I was in Kamloops. And uh, so I was in a trial with our uh, very skilled associate, Wendy Chung, who yeah. is actually here today. Exactly. Welcome, Wendy. Hi, Thank Wendy. You. Thanks for having me. So the topic today is going to be all about you two narcissists talking about your winning case. Exactly, <laughs> our winning case. So, uh, so we were lucky enough to uh, Wendy and I to deal with this case in Kamloops, and uh, you know, I think um, I think it'd be a, it's an interesting case and, and something that our listeners might like. So, welcome, Wendy. Let's talk about you first. Uh, Wendy is a an associate here at FHP Lawyers. You've actually been. When were you called? been a while. I was called in Alberta in 2007 and I was called here in 2008. I might be off one or one year, plus or minus one year. Okay, so Wendy yeah. is a, one of our senior litigation associates and, and Wendy and I co-counseled a case uh, in, in Kamloops. I thought it would be interesting for our uh, listeners to, to hear about it. So for some of our listeners who are avid Castanet um, viewers, which I know a lot of people in Kelowna are, this case was actually featured on Castanet as well, and it was, it's the case about the moving creek. Exactly. So what it was, was it's a dispute by two landowners about where the boundary line that separated their land was. And in this case, a piece of land was subdivided in 1911. The boundary between the properties was listed as a creek. Now, the northern property was occupied for a while by English settlers who, by the 1920s, went back to England, and they maintained ownership as absentee landlords, and at times rented out the slowly crumbling house on the property, but no one had lived in it since, uh, I think, the early 1980s. So the southern parcel was developed in the 1960s as a campground, and when it was developed, campsites were placed right up to the southern uh, bank of the creek. And, and why not? That's where the boundary was shown on the plans. And in the 2000s, there was a new owner of the northern parcel who hired a surveyor who gave him the opinion that the creek had moved north suddenly and that part of the campground was on his property. So fireworks ensued and there were some years of fences being put up and then torn down and police attendances and allegations of trespass and uh, finally it went to, to court and Wendy and I uh, represented the owner of the northern parcel and, uh, and as it turns out the victor. So the court ultimately concluded that the creek was where it was drawn in 1911 and that's why we won that was our position that it had moved by a sudden or a series of sudden events like a flood or simply a quick or a sudden change in the course of movement of the water which carved a new channel perhaps. It's established in the law that, uh, that there's a principle where a boundary, a water boundary moves suddenly, a process called avulsion, that the property line stays exactly where the waterway once was and becomes forever fixed in that former location. However, if a waterway moves slowly and imperceptibly over time, that concept is called accretion, 
then what happens is the the court will rule that the property boundary moves with the waterway. And in this case, the court found that there was a sudden event, possibly a flood that took place in the 1940s. This creek moved suddenly to its present location, and uh, the boundary is fixed where it was in the early 1900s. So for lawyers, this is a really interesting case. I told my wife about it, and she just made the yawning motion. But uh, there's a lot of fun legal stuff about this case because the evidence that we got to uh, present uh, was all historical evidence. We needed to show that that creek had moved suddenly over the last hundred years. So some of the, some of the things we were able to bring were uh, evidence that's usually not admissible in court, uh, hearsay evidence of people that lived in the area as to what they had heard. And that's exactly why the evidence, the way that it was presented was so interesting because we did rely in large part on expertise of surveyors, of hydrogeomorphologists, also a geospatial analyst. Now, these are rather big words, and we had come to learn over the course of the five days uh, what a, a surveyor ever does, but a hydrogeomorphologist is an expert in the movement of waterways. And a geospatial analyst studies the interpretation of aerial photographs. In this case, we also relied on some hearsay evidence of residents who used to live in the area who can perhaps talk about where this waterway once was, where they believed this waterway once was, perhaps based on the topography of the land. So one of the cool things about being a lawyer is that uh, we get to learn well as we are trying to prove a case. And in this case, uh, one of my takeaways was the aerial photographs. And I had no idea before this case how many and how detailed there were aerial photographs. In this case, there was a photograph from 1928 that would be described today as a, a megapixel picture. Why would they be taking pictures in 1928? But it was there. And uh, so that was a, a big part of the case is that that picture was there. We were able to, to, with the use of the experts, show where the creek was. And by the 1960s, there's quite detailed um, aerial photographs. Now, you have to keep in mind, with these aerial photographs, they are taken in black and white. And the technology that was used back in the 20s, even leading up to the 70s, is not as good as a technology that we would have now. So when we are presenting these aerial photographs to the expert and to the court, there could be um, issues such as the, the photograph could be fuzzy, it's in black and white. Um, and so what we rely on these experts to do is to interpret these photographs and they may see uh, a white line and they may see many white lines in the photograph that could or may not be a creek. And, and so we rely on these experts to tell us why one particular white line is a creek and why another, the other white lines are not a creek. So why were you in court to begin with? What was the argument on the other side? So the neighbors, um, we'll call them the other side, literally and figuratively, they were saying that the creek, the way that it was drawn in the 1911 plan was drawn incorrectly. And the creek where it is today has always been there and has always been there for the past hundred years. So it was quite interesting uh, to overcome uh, that argument 
we uh, went through archived um, information and found uh, articles that had been written. And all that's actually admissible in this type of case, which it might not be in other cases. Uh, we were able to sh find articles talking about how the um, development of the campground included dynamiting trees and and uh, we were able to show blading with the use of an expert uh, when they were developing the campground in the 1960s, covering up and the old creek. There were some kind of interesting things that uh, you found as well to the west uh, regarding um, uh, aerial, uh, a photograph that was taken by a local who just happened to be taking his wife on a um, plane ride for their anniversary that just happened to show the old, the old channel. That's right. It was really neat because one of the witnesses that we had for our clients was uh, a resident who had actually worked um, as a groundskeeper for the two properties that were in dispute. And not only that, he did, he happened to have a series of photographs that he took, um, I believe in the mid 90s when he decided to take his wife for an anniversary trip in a private airplane. And he took photographs that the witness's interpretation was that there was a line in that looked like a dried patch of grass, which showed perhaps where this creek had once run. That's amazing. We're so proud of you guys. So question though, um, do you think that the other side is going to appeal the decision? Well, we were wondering, uh, but there's a limited time to appeal. And so now that time is up. And uh, so at this point, uh, we are, uh, we're in the clear. So, you know, one of the things that I, I struggled with a little bit in is that uh, we, as when we do cases, sometimes we have to go away. And this case was in Kamloops. And so, Wendy, I know you've got young children at home. And I thought maybe our listeners might be interested in how does that work for somebody with young children? You have to go away for a week. I, I always thought, you know, litigation's a tough gig for a a uh, young person, but, but also especially a young mother. I, I don't know. Do you have any comments on that? It's interesting because I have, admittedly, I have shied away from doing court work for a while because I have two little ones at home to raise and I know the dedication of time and intensity um, that one has to dedicate to being a trial lawyer. In this case, I was lucky enough to be able to fly my in-laws in and it's interesting because I had realized really on this trip to Kamloops that it's not just the hours that you're in court, but when, when we are prepping for trial and in trial, uh, your mind is on the case 24-7. It was almost a blessing in a way that this trial was out of town. Uh, my hometown is Kelowna uh, because it allowed me to really dedicate the mornings and the evenings before and after court to the case and be really absorbed into the case. Um, and I had thought of, you know, moving forward if there is a trial, let's say, in my hometown of Kelowna, I actually thought about, you know what, if there is another kind of multi-day trial, I would probably just get a hotel, uh, even in town, and, and know that I don't need to go home after the trial and still, you know, be a mother and, and feed and clean and all that fun stuff and just be able to dedicate that time. I'm 
you know, in a way I'm blessed because my children are old enough that they are somewhat self-sufficient. They're nine and 10. Um, but it is certainly is a challenge and I can see how it can be a challenge for primary caretakers of children and, and also be a trial lawyer at the same time. Yeah, because I think a lot of our listeners don't realize what it means to, to go to trial and it's all consuming and uh, you are working, you know, so 16 sometimes 18 hours a day, very, very tough. So uh, when you're at my stage in life, uh, you know, my kids don't know if I'm, I'm home or not, but uh, I, I, did, I do appreciate those comments. So uh, something to think about if you're going to be a trial lawyer, Mm-mm. I guess. I said no, immediately no. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're here quite a bit too. I'm definitely here a lot, but not that type of a lot. And like, I just don't know. You, there's no shutoff. Like, I see our other litigators when they're in trial, and your email is continuously going. Your other files are still going. People are still looking for you, and it's it's a lot. You're in court from 10 a.m. to sometime between 2.30 and 4 o'clock, but your day doesn't start at 10 and 4.30, let's say. I recall being in Kamloops. I was up by 5.30 every morning, and I didn't go to bed till midnight, sometimes past midnight. Um, And so, you know, a day in court isn't just the day in court. For the lawyers themselves, it's a 12, possibly any 12, 14-hour day. We celebrated our win by driving home. In those two hours of time, um, we got to, I remember at one point, we were driving uh, from Kamloops back to Kelowna, and Uh, one of the things that we learned about in the trial was when there are trees that lean, that means that that tree was along a waterway. And as we were driving home, I remember saying to Clay, I looked out the window and I said to Clay, there's a sweeping, leaning tree. That means a creek must have been there. (laughs) You'll never be able to see a forest. Exactly. Thanks so much for coming on, Wendy. That was amazing. And again, congratulations to you guys. This is so great. And we're, again, so proud of you. So I always end off uh, a guest or a new guest with the same question. Tell us and our listeners something about you that you wouldn't know otherwise. I think Clay knows this about me, but not a lot of people do. Um, if you guys are all familiar with the famous magician David Copperfield, Clay's already nodding his head. Uh, David Copperfield once pulled me on stage and effectively made me disappear on stage. Um, but I, I am still here. <laughs> um, <laughs> or, or am I? Uh, so that's, that's something that uh, it's, it's, it's like on a bucket list, right? To, and I've always admired David Copperfield growing up. So to be one of his guests and for me to be um, in a in a magic show with him was wonderful. And of Are course, you sworn to secrecy. I to did. How he did it. You know what? I did sign a non-disclosure agreement uh, on the sport, uh, but I didn't get to read it. Exactly. You so know, I wasn't given count. an opportunity. Thank you very much. I wasn't given an opportunity to sign an independent legal advice, or to seek independent legal advice. In Vegas, I'm going to assume you had a couple drinks. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're also so, drunk. So perhaps I may reveal it. Stay tuned um, of how David Copperfield made me disappear. So following that, uh, it's time for us to disappear. FHMP lawyers are rooted in community and ready to help. Send your business law questions to podcast at fhplawyers.com.